hey, um, this is the last Sunday before Christmas Eve, before Christmas Day. Are you ready? Uh, do you have your gifts bought? Do you have, does anybody have their gifts wrapped? I mean, that would be amazing. Wow. Okay, so you don't even need to get ready for Christmas. You're ready. Um, you know, as we're getting out our Christmas decorations, I'm sure this is the same way with you. When you get them out, you uh, have all these memories that come flooding from past years. And for me, this past week, uh, the memory that came flooding was 34 years ago this week. 34 years ago this week, um, my wife and I were not only getting ready for Christmas and all the details of getting ready for Christmas, we were also getting ready to, or she was getting ready to deliver our firstborn. And uh, yes, um, our first child was due right around Christmas Day. And so this week before Christmas, we're, you know, she's very pregnant and we're wondering, when's it gonna be? And I'm like, sweetheart, we're like Joseph and Mary. This is so cool, man. We're gonna have, wouldn't it be great if we had our son? We didn't know it was a son, but our child, wouldn't it be great if he was a son, first of all? And wouldn't it be great if, you know, he was born on Christmas day? And she goes, first of all, we are nothing like Joseph and Mary. And second of all, no, I don't want to be in the hospital on Christmas day. And I'm like, Oh, good point. And she goes, as a matter of fact, I want to have this kid early. I'm praying that this will happen early so I can have the child and be home before Christmas. I don't want to spend Christmas in the hospital. I'm like, yeah, me either. It's a good thing I married her, right? So God apparently listens to her because she had the child a week before he was due, December 20th. So it's this week and it's December 20th. And I said to her, you know, be, we're going to be, I still was on the Joseph and Mary kick. I was like, you know, tell me now when the contractions start and I'll get a donkey and we'll just, you know, take the, ride the donkey. She's like, cut with the Joseph and Mary stuff, man. I'm like, okay, okay. You know, I'm, like, I'm happy. I'm excited. We, we had our firstborn son, our only son, one that I love. And, uh, and uh, December 20th, and not only that, we, we brought him back in a stocking uh, before Christmas Day, and we had our first little Christmas as a threesome, as a family. It was so cool. And um, as we're getting ready for both these big events, Christmas and the birth of our first child, there are so many details that had to be taken care of for both of these things. And uh, as push came to shove and as we got closer and closer, we had to make some decisions about that detail is not going to be addressed until after the birth. And this detail is, is, you know, is primary because when a baby comes, you don't say, well, can you wait a minute? <laughs> can, you, can you just put that on hold? We're not done with this yet. When the baby comes, the baby comes. And uh, all these details, I can remember running around trying to get all these details together. Well, um, when I think about the birth of Jesus, especially when I think about the, the gospel of Luke, I actually think about the gospel of Luke being a scrapbook. So my wife was putting this scrapbook together in those days, and uh, she was teaching other people how to put a scrapbook together. And I brought the one that she put together. And I know this is not a stretch. I do not believe this is a stretch. The gospel of Luke is like a scrapbook in that Luke's got, all, in fact, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four gospels, they've got all these snapshots of Jesus, right? They've got these pictures, these little episodes in the life of Jesus, and they've got to choose which scene, which snapshot am I going to put in the scrapbook called the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John. 
And here is, yes, I do have some pictures from 34 years ago. Here is some pictures from our scrapbook. Again, this, she was using this one to teach other people how to put scrapbooks together. And, uh, you know, we're so excited about uh, this, this birth. And this is my favorite picture because we, put, we, we were in such a small place. The nursery was in my study. So I was already introducing my son to the books, you know, just trying to get him. There was a basketball in there and books, you know, the most important things. And a crib. Yeah, there was a crib in there. But I, I got thinking about all these details and all these pictures that were taken and the ones that Andrew decided to include in this scrapbook. And I thought, that's just like the Gospel of Luke. Luke is a scrapbooker. And the best scrapbookers are not just throwing pictures in, kind of random, here's a picture of the birth, you know, here's a picture there. No, they're telling a story. The best scrapbookers are putting together the pictures in such a way and writing in the, in the margins to tell a story based upon their purpose as the scrapbooker. That's what my wife did, and that's what the Gospel of Luke did. That's what Luke did. He picked pictures, snapshots, and he put them together in chapters 1, 2, and 3, to help us tell, hear a story from the perspective that he wanted to hear. Now, some of you may know that, that Mark, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John, don't even tell us about the birth of Jesus. There's no pictures. There's no scrapbook about his birth. We don't even know that he was born. I mean, it could have just come down from, from the sky somewhere. But Matthew and Luke are the ones that tell us some of the details of the birth of Jesus. And yet... If you compare Luke and Matthew's version of the birth of Jesus, you can see they chose to put in very different details. In fact, if you add Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew, Mark, and John, all the stuff that they had together about Jesus' birth and childhood, it doesn't even come close to all the stuff that Luke put. So he, he's got a vision in mind about the birth of Jesus, about something he wants Theophilus. Remember Theophilus? We're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. Theophilus is the guy that Luke is writing to. He's discipling Theophilus. So he's constantly thinking, how can I put stories in? And what are the the details I need to tell Theophilus so he becomes a uh, a fully devoted follower of Jesus? So he becomes a disciple who's becoming more and more like Christ. And so Luke is putting his scrapbook together, thinking about Theophilus, thinking about what pictures, what stories he wants to include, And his decision in Luke chapter 2 surprises me when I think about him as a doctor. We we believe that Luke was a medical doctor. And I think to myself, the kind of things that you included, now you're a detail guy, but the kinds of things that you included surprised me. In fact, I even put this in your notes. Why does Luke record the kinds of details he does about Jesus' birth? Um, for instance, there aren't any details about God's direct activity. I mean, isn't this something that God's doing? And, you know, the first six verses that we're going to look at today, you won't even see the name God. You won't see any reference to the Lord. Now, if we read the whole Christmas story, verses 1 through 20, by the way, do you guys do that in your family? We read Luke 2, 1 through 20 every Christmas morning. It's one of our Christmas family traditions. And I'll read the rest of Luke 2 on Christmas Eve and uh, Christmas Day. But today, I'm just going to read the first six verses. You won't even see God's name there. And there's no indication, just starting with chapter 2, that God is doing all of this. And 
I scratched my head, and I'm like, Luke, why are, you, why are you giving us those details? Secondly, he's a doctor, right? But there's no details about the labor and the delivery. And I know I'm from the West, and, you know, when we hear about a birth, we want to know, you know, how much did the baby weigh? What was its gender? How much did it weigh? How long is it? You know, um, some people might even ask for APGAR scores. You know, what was the delivery like? What was labor like? You know, how's mom? And we ask all these kinds of questions. Luke does not address any of that stuff. He's a doctor. And we don't know how much Jesus weighed. You know, I'm not sure they had, yeah, they had scales then, but I doubt if they had them where Jesus was being born. But we don't hear anything about, you know, those kinds of details at all. There's no APGAR scores. Some of you don't even know what APGAR scores are. That's all right. Your day is coming. Um, Luke, I'm, I'm, I'm interested why you chose to include the details you chose. And then one more thing, a caveat here. He doesn't give us any of the details of the setting. Now, we think because of Christian art, we think there's animals there, but the Bible doesn't say that. We don't even know, was he born in a cave, a, a stable, a barn, a back room, a shed? These are things that people have put in art, but it's not in the Bible. Luke doesn't tell us. So we really don't know, was it a cave? Was it a barn? Was it a stable? We don't know, was there a midwife? Most births in those days had midwives. Was there a midwife? I'd like to know that. Um, was there any other family? I see, you don't think there was because you've never seen family in any of the paintings or any of the, the nativity scenes. But remember, Joseph and Mary are back at his ancestry, ancestry, ancestry home where his family was living. So I think it's very probable that there was family, but we don't know that because Luke didn't tell us those details. And you think to yourself, well, well, then what details did he give? If he wrote more about Jesus's birth than anybody else, then what details did he give us? Well, that's what I want to talk about today. And as you find Luke chapter two, then you can stand to your feet. We're going to read verses one through six. And here's what, here's what I want to say to you as you're finding your way. I think that there's very intentional purposes in Luke for why he chose to give us the details that he gave us. And we're gonna read part of that Christmas story, that famous chapter, maybe the most famous chapter in the whole Bible. We're gonna start reading that today. And I want you to look as we read with new eyes. Since Luke didn't give us the kinds of things you would expect to hear, why did he give us the details that we have and with that in mind, let's now read um, these first six verses. You ready to go? In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was, while the first, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee to the region of Judea, where the tribe of Judah is from, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child while they were there. So it probably didn't happen that she came and they gave birth that night. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. I'll, I'll stop there. Of course, we know the next verse says, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, 
you know, wrapped him in cloths, put him in a manger, and then the shepherds come, okay? So, so you can be seated. Um, not only do I believe that Luke had intention about which details he wrote, but here's the, here's the thing I want you to hear today. If you and I can, can grasp why Luke gave us the details he gave us, it will dramatically transform the way you follow Jesus, the way you walk with God. If you're a Christian here today, if I can help you see why I think Luke included the details he included, it will transform the way you live your Christian life. And I think it's because we don't see some of the truths that I want to help you see today that we wring our hands, that we complain about the latest government decision, the latest thing from the Supreme Court, the latest thing about you know, what's happening in elections. And we, and we get all uptight and all upset about things that are happening. I believe that's a lack of faith. I believe that's a lack of trusting in the sovereignty of God. And I believe that Luke is gonna help us see some things for those of us who are following Jesus as his disciples that can transform the way we follow him. So it starts with this phrase, the time came. To me, that kind of unlocks what Luke is doing because this phrase implies it's not just the, the days, the hours, the minutes, the seconds. Remember last time you were around a, a baby being born? The seconds before the baby is born. It's not just that that's referring to when the time came, but I also think Luke is helping us see when he talks about the time came, he's, he's seeing the big picture as well, that God has been planning this birth. God's been planning for this moment. You talk about getting ready for Christmas. You talk about excitement for Christmas Day. Before there was a word called Christmas, God was excited about this day, the birth of Jesus, and had been planning it for centuries and waiting and anticipating for when the time came. And I think Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saw this in a very famous passage in Galatians 4.4. He says, but when the set time had fully come, he's grasping this, especially with this word set time and the fact that it's, 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 it's pregnant. This time is pregnant. It's waiting to fully come. Paul is helping us see that God's been working towards this day. He's been leading to this day. He's been, you know, like a great event planner. He's putting together all these things that happen to bring us to this day, to this moment. And notice what Paul says next. When the time had fully come, God sent. What Luke does not say that God sent Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Think about it. There's, there's no place in the New Testament where it says, and God said to Joseph and Mary, get thou down to Bethlehem because that's where Messiah has to be born. I mean, there's other places where God says, like later on in the, in the story of Jesus, that says an angel appeared to Joseph and Mary and said, go to Egypt, take the child to Egypt. It's direct, it's clear. Why don't we have any command from God? You know, something like this. Hey, Joe and Mary, you know, your son's gonna be the Messiah. Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem, so just head down there, will you? And head down there so just in time so that the baby can be born. That'll just make things a lot easier. It'll fulfill scripture, it'll be wonderful. You know, a little bit tongue in cheek, but not really. Why doesn't God direct them, send them down? 
Paul says that God is working, that God sent. But watch this. He's not working in the obvious, supernatural, miraculous ways that we tend to think that God moves. Luke, in this first six verses especially, is working through mundane details about Roman censuses and and, uh, needing to go down to Bethlehem. And you don't even see the big picture until the, the passage begins to unfold. So what Luke is helping us see And what Paul wants us to see is that regardless of of how things may appear, God is working. In fact, you could write that down. Why did Luke record all these details? Because he wants to show us God is working. Now, let me fast forward 30 years. Just kind of hold your place in Luke 2. Can you fast forward 30 years? Remember Jesus saying these words in John 5? My father is always working. Remember that? And then he says, and so am I. God is always working. Sometimes it's in miraculous ways, and sometimes it's in mundane ways. We love the miraculous ways. We can see it. Oh, that's what God is doing. And I love signs and wonders. I love miracles. It's so clear. That's what God is doing. But God does not do most of his work with miracles and signs and wonders. Thank God that he does do those things throughout the Bible and today. But most of what God is doing, because he's always working. That's what Jesus said. He's always working. Let me back that up. This is Jesus speaking. Most of what he does is in the mundane ways. We don't see it. And since we don't see it, we don't believe that God is working. Here's what I want you to get as a disciple of Jesus, as a person who's following Jesus. God is always working. Not based upon what you see. I want to invite you to practice faith that regardless of whether I see God's hand, I believe God's hand is at work. Amen? Regardless of how things feel to me, regardless of how things look on in my life, in my family's life, in the landscape of the country I live in, the business that I'm running, the business that I'm in, the church I'm in, regardless of how things appear, I believe that God is working. And if you can get that and live with the expectancy and the belief that God is working, regardless of whether you see it, it changes everything. Instead of you Again, wringing your hands going, why this? God, where were you? Why did you let that happen? Why is that guy president? Why did the Supreme Court do that? Oh, you know, whatever side of the aisle you're on, Christians should never wring their hands at decisions that are being made in our world because there's a sovereign God who's over it, amen? And this God is always working. I wonder if Luke pulls back the supernatural work of God to help us see the mundane details so we can see some of the ways that God's working behind the scenes. In fact, I'm gonna give three thoughts to you, three ways that I think God is working behind the scenes and in the mundane things and details. And I wonder if Luke has brought this out so that we can see them. So So here we go. Let's go back to this text. Verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Jesus is a Jew. 
This is in Israel. This is a Jewish thing. Why are we talking? In the introduction to the most important you know, birth in history, why are we talking about Rome? Who cares who's in charge? Who cares what Caesar Augustus says? I mean, none of that matters, or does it? It mattered to those people. That's the world they were living in, just like it matters to us when decisions are handed down, when laws are made, when decisions the court makes. That's the world we live in, and especially this world. They actually hated Rome, the Jews. They, they, because Roman, the Roman um, Empire had conquered their land. They were oppressing them. They were occupying their country. It was, I, I can't even go into the kind of gruesome details that Romans would do to Jews just to say, we're charged, we're powerful, and you're not. You're the pawns, we're, we're in charge. I kind of wonder, where, where the king of the world, Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the world, is thinking he's in charge of the whole Roman Empire. <laughs> Meanwhile, the real king of the world is being born. Did Luke kind of set a little context here? What you think is happening, what you, where you think the power is, where you think the authority and all the sovereignty is, uh, uh, that's, they're just pawns in my big uh, event planning that I'm doing. And so censuses not, are not important unless God was using this secular event, a census, to move Joseph and Mary down to, well, actually, we, we, we say up to Bethlehem, even though they go down south in Bible language. We, whenever you go up to the Jerusalem vicinity, you're going up to Jerusalem. And so they went up to Bethlehem, which is a little, a little suburb almost of, of, of Jerusalem. And I, I'm beginning to go, oh, look, I love what you're doing here. And it helps me write down this thought that God is working through secular events for his sovereign purposes. I'm convinced that God used the census to bring Joseph and Mary. I don't know why he didn't just tell him to go to Bethlehem. He chose to use a government decree. He chose to use the man in power to accomplish his sovereign purposes. God's still doing that. God's still working through secular government. God's still working through decisions that are being made. God's still working through things that we would say that's an ungodly. See, see, we like to separate the world into secular and spiritual. God doesn't. The whole world is spiritual for him. And so, you know, God works in and through everything and everyone to accomplish his purposes. And we need to be able to see it doesn't matter how powerful Caesar Augustus is. It doesn't matter how frustrating it is to have to go 90 miles <coughs> with a pregnant woman to fulfill the, the duties of a census. God is moving. But before that, there's some things that I want to just take a couple of seconds to point out that are really, really easy to miss in ways that I think fit what Luke said when he said, when the time had come, and what Paul says in Galatians 4, when the set time had fully come, there's a couple other factors that I want you to just indulge me to see because it's a picture of how God works. The first thing, you're not going to be expected to see this because you read in English, it was written in Greek. Why is Greek a big deal? Because for the first time in thousands and thousands and thousands of years, there's a common language to the whole world. 
That never, that never happened before, you know, except that creation, right? And so, and so um, you have all these different peoples who are now speaking a common language. Why? Because of a little history lesson. There's this guy named Alexander the Great. Anybody ever heard of him? Alexander the Great was genius for, for multiple reasons. Here's the one that I want to point out, that as he conquered the then known world, every time he left a conquered country or important city, he would leave behind teachers and builders who would build libraries and teach people the Greek language and culture because he wasn't satisfied in just being in charge of the land. He wanted his Greek culture to take over the world. And so he taught everybody Greek. So here we are in the time of Jesus and everybody speaks Greek. Why is that important? Well, because now when the gospel story of Jesus Christ gets spread, it can be spread through the whole world because the whole world speaks the same language. Come on, someone say, wow. That's God's event planning. He doesn't miss any details. And so he recognized this is the time, not 500 years earlier when there's all these different kinds of languages and the story of Jesus now has to cross language barriers. Let's wait until this time in history when everybody speaks the same language. This is the Greek language spoken throughout the world, but there's more. The Romans conquered the Greeks, but didn't change the language. But what they brought was called Pax Romana which means the peace of Rome. That's cool because now you can travel with safety. Remember, Joseph and Mary have to travel from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem. They can travel on safety. Actually, they can travel with a, a smooth road because Rome um, paved all of these roads in the Roman Empire. So ease of travel, safety, law and order is, is happening all over the Roman Empire creating a way for travel to happen with ease. It's hard for us to imagine what the kind of danger travel was 2,000 years ago or 2,300 years ago because there was bandits everywhere. There were pirates on land and sea, seriously, everywhere. And there was, it was dangerous to travel. Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan connected with so many people because it happened all the time. And yet, God brings the Roman peace to pro provide a way for the gospel to be spread and with ease of travel all the way around the Roman Empire. A couple more things. The leadership decisions that were being made. Caesar Augustus, a godless man, he makes a decree. He makes a decision that's unpopular, very unpopular, and yet it was part of God's plan to get Joseph and Mary from Here's the verse, verse one, a decree across the entire Roman world. That's the way that God, as we said, gets Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. And then the last thing I would have you say is from verse three. So everyone, and Joseph and Mary are part of the everyone, went to their own town. So they're coming to Bethlehem, but the life situation that they're in, because of the leadership decisions that are being made, is very uncomfortable. These first two things are good, but these second two things are uncomfortable. They're difficult. Let me, so let me pause. Next time you think about railing against the government or railing against a decision made in your family or railing against a decision made in this church or any other, your business, any place where you are, you know, so, 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 uh, kind of subject to somebody else's leadership decisions, let me just ask you as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus who believes in the sovereignty of God, do you really want to complain and whine about that leadership decision? Because in a way, you're kind of whining against a sovereign God. God's not bound by our laws, by our 
legislator by any, anybody else's decisions. God is sovereign or he's not. But these decisions that were made created a life situation that was difficult. I never said it wouldn't be, wouldn't be difficult, but he said, you can trust me. And so some of you may find yourself in life situations because of leadership decisions that, like Joseph and Mary, are uncomfortable. Can you trust God that he's working in this life situation because of other people's decisions? Can you trust that a sovereign God can work even through the most painful circumstances to accomplish his purposes? See, God's never had his hands tied. God's never paced heaven and went, now what? He's never chafed or been anxious about, man, I had all these plans, and now Jim went and screwed things up. No, God's never thought that about anybody. He allows for our free will, and he accomplishes his sovereign purposes by bringing everything to work into his purposes and plans and promises. Can you believe that? Can you trust that? Because not only was God working, but in your notes, you can now make it contemporary. God is, same God. <laughs> Luke is showing us what he's doing behind the scenes in Luke 2. On the, mo- the most important thing in history, that same God is working. And he's working out his purposes in our world, or put a why there, in your world. Let's keep going. Next verse, verse four. So Joseph went up from the town of, of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Again, where's God? Nowhere in that verse. You know, I said earlier, why didn't God just say, Joseph and Mary, please go to Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah has to be born. Nothing about that. Remember, God is working even when you don't see him working. You said you already said that, Jim. I know. I want you to get it. God is working even when you don't see him working. I don't see him in this verse, but what I do see is three phrases and words I want to point out to you because God, not only is God working in the, in, in the secular, in the governmental, in, the, in, in the, 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 the macro part of the world, he's also working to fulfill biblical prophecies. God is working through biblical prophecies for his salvific purposes. Some of you are not familiar with that word salvific. It just means things that lead to salvation. So the phrase things to lead to salvation is kind of clunky. So just the word salvific, but you can see salvation in there. So God's prophecies, the biblical prophecies from the scriptures, the Old Testament, are all about God's saving purposes, his salvific purposes. Let me help you see this. Uh, I'm going to summarize over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament with one verse, because that one verse actually fits Luke chapter 2, verse 4, like hand in glove. So beautiful. It's Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, this is written 700, 800 years before Jesus is born, a prophecy. You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, kind of, it's kind of a region. Though you are small, little town of Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, Judea is the region where Judah, the tribe of Judah is, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler or, or king over Israel. So these three things, let me help you see. The first thing is that Jesus is fulfilling 
the Old Testament, the scriptural heritage of Messiah. All these messianic prophecies, and we've talked about this in previous sermons. There's over 300, and some people think 600 prophecies in the Old Testament that, that create a heritage of the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus is going to fulfill every one of those. The way Luke does it in Luke 2, 4, fits so beautifully with Micah 5, 2 to say that Jesus is fulfilling those scriptural verses, those prophecies that are all about the coming of Messiah. This, the, the place, Bethlehem, Jesus fulfills the prophetic birthplace of Messiah. I've said that several times this morning. <laughs> How did God get Joseph and Mary down there? Just simple decree of taking a census, but he's fulfilling a biblical prophecy. Here's what I want you to see. While God's working in his sovereign ways to fulfill his purposes in the world, he's also fulfilling those biblical prophecies for his salvific saving purposes. And then finally, this idea that it's in Judah and that he's the king helps us see that it's Jesus who fulfills the kingly lineage of Messiah. These are three very significant things that are all happening in the same verse, and they're all being echoed by Luke chapter 2, verse 4, because Luke wants us to see that God's working in the details to accomplish his saving purposes. And so this language of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, being in the line of David, because David was the king, being in that from the house of David, all these prophecies about there's going to be a ruler that's going to be like King David. He's going to be from the line of David. He's going to be born in the city of David. All these biblical prophecies, all for God's saving purposes, come to a climax, and we're going to talk about this this next week, in the famous line of the angels, just a couple of verses later in Luke, where in verse 11, the angel says, Today in the town of David, a Savior one that God's been planning for centuries and working out all the details, a savior at just the right time. A savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, the one who will save us. So God is working for two great purposes, our salvation and then our sanctification. And we can see the salvation purposes because of the redeeming language, the salvation language, the savior language. But contrary to what a lot of people like to say, God did not send Jesus just to save us from our sins so we could go to heaven someday. He saved us so we could have purpose and meaning in life. Salvation is not, not about someday. It's about today, this life, this world. This generation that you live in, God wants your salvation to affect the way you live today. And what is that? That's growing to be more and more like Christ. Romans 8, 28, that's sanctification. Romans 8, 28, God is working in all things, in all things, making everything work together for his purposes, for those who are called according to his purposes. And what are those purposes? To be more like Jesus, sanctification. So God's working to save us and to sanctify us and that same God that's working in these details that Luke is helping us see is the same God who's working in the details of your life to bring you to a saving knowledge of Jesus so you will surrender your life to Jesus and begin to follow him, to learn from him, to become more like him. That's sanctification. So if you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, why do you think you're here today? 
because <laughs> God brought you here, to hear about how he works in the details of life, pictured in the story of Jesus' birth is the way God works. You're here today because today could be your day to surrender your life to Jesus. Do it. Or maybe you've already given your life to Christ, and you say to yourself, why am I here today? So you can see that God's working in the details to sanctify you because God uses life to make us more like Christ. He uses everyday life, not just sermons and worship services and special moments and miracles and signs and wonders. No, he uses life to make us like Christ. But most of us miss it because we don't see God working in the details. And so we don't realize that's a holy moment. We think it's merely a mundane moment. It's just another day in the life. No, every bush is a burning bush. Every moment is, is a moment for God to speak. Every piece of ground is a holy ground because this world belongs to God and you belong to him and you're here for his purposes. That's living the adventure. But I'm only just getting started. So we got these two big things. God works through the world events. God works through biblical prophecies. And then thirdly, God works through specific details. And, and yes, I'm a preacher, so we got sovereign purposes and saving purposes and strategic purposes, but they don't just all start with S. They're all really good words. God is sovereignly working. He is working for his saving, salvific purposes, and he is so strategic. We've, we've seen that this morning, how he used all these things to bring Joseph and Mary. Now watch verse five. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. These are strategic details that God is arranging. Again, like this cosmic event planner, he's arranging. There's a couple of things I want you to see. Number one, where is there? Some, shout out where they're at. They're in Bethlehem. Okay, so he's brought them to the right place, Bethlehem, and he's, he is Joseph with Mary. It's, it's not going to work if just Joseph goes. So God works it out, so Mary comes with him. Why? Because this child, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, he's in utero right now, but Jesus, God's got to get them to Bethlehem. So he's got the right place. Now he's got the right people. And here's our phrase we started with now. While they were there. The moment, the, the time that they were there, the time came. In other words, all of this, the right people, the right place, all the details is all happening at just the right time because the sovereign, strategic, saving God is working in the details of our world to accomplish his purposes. And he knows just what he's doing. We don't see it often. God is drawing bringing, inviting, calling. Remember John, oh, what is it? John 6, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. Well, God is drawing the right people to the right place at the right time. And that's why you're here this morning. Because God wants you to hear that he's working in your life. And some of you are like, well, what? I don't see it, Jim. I, I, that's my point. I, I, I know most of the things that God's doing in my life, I don't see. Most of the things that God's doing in your life, you don't see, but you will. That's why I'm asking God to help you develop eyes of faith that look beyond 
the physical, look beyond just the human details of our world and begin to trust God, to believe that God is working out his purposes in your life, his purposes in your life. And he does it in, with perfect timing. <laughs> he, he's never been late. I have been late. I can be late from time to time. God's never been late. He's never went, oh, rats, I, I just missed that. Never. Can you believe that you are in the palm of God and that everything that happens, he can bring good out of? Can, can you believe that God is working out all of the details to accomplish his purposes? Even if you aren't clear about what those specific purposes are, can you trust him? Can you believe that the same God that's working out these world historic details is the same God that's at work in your life today? Because if you can believe that, if you can grab a hold of that, it'll change your attitude, your perspective, your viewpoint. It won't change your circumstances, but it'll change the way you see your circumstances. Amen? It'll change the way you walk through your world. You'll walk in the world with, with an expectancy, with a faith. God is working versus a, where is God? Ugh. Or anger at God because he didn't come through the way you thought. I mean, I get that. I get that. God has done things in my life that has made me angry. It's true for you too. You just don't have the guts to admit it. God's done things in my life that have disappointed me. God's done a lot of things in my life I didn't understand. But that's where faith comes in. And I've walked with God enough years to be able to tell you now, you can trust God with every detail of your life. He's working. Believe him. Trust him. Expect him to work and see as he opens things up before you because the eyes of faith see things that the eyes of you know, sight don't see. Even though there's a lot of things that God's doing that we don't see, when we have eyes of faith, we see things other people don't see. I don't think, I'm not saying we make things up, but we just see God working. So, so that's the climax that I want to bring you to. Since God is working out his purposes in our lives, with perfect timing for his glory, here's a simple decision. Trust him. Trust him. I mean, why do you think you live in the neighborhood you live? Because it was the best deal in the house you could find? No, because God wants you to influence your neighbors. Trust him. Why do you think you have the job you have? Because you're so brilliant, because of your networking skills, because of your hard work? Well, maybe, but... There's also a sovereign God who's got you at your job because he wants to teach you something there and he wants you to witness for Jesus Christ at your job. Why do you think you have the children you have? Is it just because you and your spouse got together? Oh yeah, but there's a sovereign God who was working. I'd be with all my heart, with all my heart that every child, God's chosen those parents for that child. Isn't that what this story is teaching us? That God's chosen, not just Jesus, but, but you, your kids. And you say, well, I had terrible parents, but what did God do 
through those terrible parents. And maybe you haven't even seen yet what he wants to do. See, Jesus has not come back yet. There's still sin in this world. We still live in a broken world. I'm broken. You can call me Pastor Broken. I'm broken. I live in a broken world. All of us experience some effects of the fall. But God is working through all of that to accomplish his purposes. And your kids, listen, mom and dad, your kids have been given to you for a very specific purpose. Love them, disciple them, lead them to Jesus. Help them see how God's working. Help them see this sermon. Help them see that God's working in all the details of life that there's a loving, sovereign God who's working even now. Teach your kids to trust him. I'm starting a parenting series in the new year. Of all places, I'm going to do it from Luke (laughs) because I believe that God led Joseph and Mary to raise Jesus in such a way that there's some things we can learn about how to disciple the next generation. And I believe that God gave you your kids for a reason, and he wants you to raise them to his, his glory. How do you do this? You trust that God is at work and giving you those kids and giving you as their parent. It's just a part of his plan. Can can you see this? Can you trust God? Because if you can, it'll change everything. It'll change your attitude. It'll change your outlook. It'll change your anxiety. It'll change your stress level because you trust God. You believe God is at work. You believe God hasn't had the last word yet. You're trusting God, not in some ethereal, super spiritual way, but in shoe leather, in in daily living your life. That's why Jesus calls us to follow him, daily life, not just believe in him. We need both. Believe Jesus, follow Jesus, trust him. Amen? Let Let me pray for you. Oh, God. You are always at work. (laughs) I get it. And your work is always for your purposes, which are beautiful and perfect and wonderful. Your timing, I don't understand your timing so many times, but you've taught me to trust you, to lean in, to trust you in my daily life. So would you help all of us put our trust in you Would you help us understand that you are the God of perfect timing? You are the God who's working in the past to bring Jesus to this world, in the past through Jesus' death on the cross, in the past through the giving of your Holy Spirit, in the past of all the things you've done, and you are working in our lives. Lord, give everyone here, everyone hearing my voice, the faith to believe God is working in my life. He's always working in my life in perfect timing. We believe this and I pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen.